0: This this morning's uh, reading comes from the uh, book of Titus, Uh, it's uh, chapter 1, page 1198 in the uh, Church Bibles. Titus chapter 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's, God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And it is at his appointed season he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that he might, might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not, quick, uh, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. E- even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy, glutton, uh, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they, they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Do you please sit down.
1: And it would be great if you could turn again to the back of the notice sheet. There's an outline there. It would be great if you could keep page 1198 open in front of you. That is the perfect and authoritative part of the next 25 minutes or so. It's a joy to welcome you here, to add my welcome to Matt's. And Matt's, my name's Andy Towner. I'm the assistant minister here, and it's great to uh, welcome you. Why don't we pray as we come to God's word? Our loving Heavenly Father, we praise you that your word is unchained. There is no place that your word is unable to go. There is no power that can constrain your word. So thank you, Father, for that. And we pray that this morning, your Holy Spirit, who calls these words to be written, please might he be our teacher. And please might your word affect us even in the depths of our hearts, those dark corridors. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Godliness matters. Godliness matters because what we believe shapes how we live. Or at least it should. I think we're used to this idea. I think we're familiar with that concept because of phrases like actions speak louder than words. You can know what someone believes by what you see them doing. So, for example, I could say to you, Katie is the godliest, the loveliest, the most attractive, the most fun girl in the whole wide world. How do you know that I mean that? Well, I married her. Yes. <laughs> Best decision I ever took in my life. My actions speak for my belief, and it means those things aren't just words. But imagine I said to you, do you know, it'd be great to get to know you a bit better, uh, to have you around for dinner sometime. Kate and I. We, we really enjoy your company. Uh, you're great fun. We'd love to uh, hang out together a bit to get some more time with you. And then an invitation wasn't forthcoming. Nothing happened that week, that month, ever. Well, the implication would be very clear, wouldn't it? They were just words. They were just words. Regardless of what I said, you might be tempted to draw the inference about what I really believed about you. In fact, Jesus told a story just like this. He told a story of a father who had two sons. And he went to the first son, and he said, Son, please will you go and work in my vineyard this afternoon? The son said no. But later on, he changed his mind, and he went, and he worked in the vineyard. The father went to the second son. Son, please will you work in my vineyard this afternoon? The son said yes. But he didn't go. Now, which one of those sons obeyed his father? The one who went, not the one who just said yes. You can tell that how by his actions. The actions, you see, speak louder than the words. Our belief is cashed out in our life, or at least it should be. And that's why godliness really, really matters. You're in the office. Uh, Everyone knows you're a Christian. You've been clear. You've told them. But the way you react to missing that promotion, just like they would have. Your actions proclaim that your boss, your career, your reputation, they're the biggest things in your life, no matter what you might say about Jesus. Promotion wins over prayer meeting every time. I know it's not always that simple. I know it's hard to do a really good job in the office. But our actions matter, don't they? Our actions speak. You're at the school gate. You're clear that you're a Christian. You've told all the mums you know that you're a Christian. But when it comes down to it, your desires for your children are identical in every way with their desires for their children. And comfort wins over a church event every time. Why would they believe what you say? I know these things aren't simple. I know they're complex. There are hard decisions to take here. But do you see that our actions speak? Our actions speak. And I take it that's true of all sorts of belief. I take it it's really obviously true when it comes to religious belief. What we believe affects how we live, or it should And so, godliness matters because it's a key part of our witness. It's a cornerstone of our testimony to our friends, our family, our colleagues. If our beliefs are cashed out in our actions, if people can tell what we believe by what we do, if our lives really teach our friends what we think about life, then what we believe, sorry, what we do matters. What we do matters. And that's why Paul writes to Titus about the truth that leads to godliness. Did you see that little phrase in verse 1? The truth that leads to godliness. Paul writes, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. Paul says there's a truth you can know that will lead to a godly life. And Paul has an expectation, doesn't he, that the truth that those Christians there know will be cashed out day by day, hour by hour. That's why I've summarized this section as the gospel is for godliness. The gospel is for godliness. Now, can I say right now, if you're here and you wouldn't want to call yourself a Christian, I hope you see that this is fascinating. If you haven't yet seen that, let me just cash it out for you for a second. You see, the Bible's got this idea that what you believe is going to affect how you live. That's what we're kind of seeing here, isn't it, in Titus chapter 1. The world has that idea too. Actions speak louder than words. And I wonder whether you agree. I wonder whether you agree that what you believe necessarily affects how you live. Would you agree that to believe different truths uh, might mean we live different lives? If so a really good question to ask yourself a really good question in fact for every single one of us here to ask ourselves today is where do those truths lead what are the key truths that I believe and how do they cash out of course you might find that um, your truths lead you somewhere you don't want to go you might find your truths lead you somewhere you haven't gone well that's worth thinking about isn't it It's an interesting question, isn't it? If we do agree that different beliefs lead to different lives, where do our beliefs lead? And as we go through, you might want to ask the question as well. Is this coherent? Does this make sense when we come to look at what truth might lead to what godliness? And if it's incoherent, please tell me afterwards. I'd love to hear why. Because the truth, I believe, must lead to a changed life or its meaningless fascinating thing to think about if you wouldn't want to call yourself a Christian. But I guess the question for all of us, the fairly obvious question at this point is, well, what truth? I mean, if you're convinced that truth leads to godliness, or at least that what you believe must be cashed out, then the question is, what truth? Or what's Paul talking about when this is a truth that leads to godliness? Well, the answer's there in verse 1 and 2. It's truth about Jesus. And we saw two little things there. In verse 1, we got the faith of God's elect. And then in verse 2, we've got this hope of eternal life. So there's two truths. There's a past truth and a future truth. A past truth and a future truth. Let's have a look. You see, in verse one, faith relates to the past. It relates to what God has already done. Particularly, it relates to the cross of Jesus Christ where he died. And if you look to the next page, to page one, one nine nine, you'll see in verse fourteen a really clear statement of that we heard earlier from Matt. Jesus Christ who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify himself for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. You see, in the past, in history, 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself over to death on a cross, a criminal's death. Why? Why? Why would the living Lord of the universe, do that? Well, verse 14 says, to buy us back from evil, to purify us, to make us keen and eager to do good. That's why Jesus gave himself over to death. And that's what the word faith means in in chapter 1, verse 1. It's faith in that, belief in the past completed work of Jesus Christ. A knowledge of that truth leads to godliness because it is to understand that the very purpose of Jesus' death was our godliness. To know that Jesus died to buy you back from evil, to know that Jesus died to purify you, to know that Jesus died to make you eager to do what is good. Of course that leads to godliness because the very purpose of Jesus' death was your godliness. Godliness. What about hope? What about hope in verse 2? The hope of eternal life. Hope relates not to the past, but of course to the future. To what God will certainly do. And again, you see the best statement in chapter 2, verse 13. uh, Where it says, the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. You see, Jesus appeared once, 2,000 years ago. And at the end of time, he will appear again. And that's our blessed hope. It's our great hope. It's our holy hope. It's our really good hope. Why? Well, he's going to judge the world. He's going to put an end to evil, to suffering, to death. He's going to reign over the recreated universe forever and ever. He's going to bring in this perfect kingdom of godliness, of justice of truthfulness, of peacefulness, of kindness, of gentleness, of humility. All those blessings that we've certainly got to look forward to. That is the whole purpose of the universe. It's the whole point of everything God is doing, is to get us there. Now, why is that a motivation to godliness? Well, listen, if that's going to be brilliant if that is going to be the most amazing time ever, you can enjoy that by doing it now. If that godliness, that goodness, is going to be great, you can enjoy those blessings now by being godly. It tells us the purpose of God's creation, brilliant moral perfection, and we can enjoy that now. The second reason that's the motivation is fairly obvious, isn't it? If we say... I understand that's where it's going, but I'm just going to do the opposite right now. I'm going to do everything contrary to that. That's to misunderstand the whole point of the universe. God is working towards that. He's working towards that for our good. So the best thing to do is work towards it ourselves. Be godly because of the blessed hope of a perfect eternity. Do you see that godliness matters? Do you see that... It matters because what we believe affects how we behave. And the Bible offers the truth that leads to godliness. The past completed work of Christ on the cross who died to make us pure. The future certain work of Christ who will bring in the perfect pure kingdom. Understanding that leads to godliness. Now what does that mean practically? What does that mean for us? Well, well, if we're convinced by this, if we're convinced that godliness really matters, if we're convinced the gospel is for godliness, we have to remember that we're not sort of saved from that to wait for that. The gospel's not, phew, I was saved then, and now I've just got to live a little bit, and I'm, and I'm waiting for then. The gospel is, I was saved from that, I'm longing for that, and I'm going to be godly now. How we act matters as we rejoice in that, as we long for that. So practically, we need to listen to sermons to change our lives. Do you ever struggle with that, coming in on a Sunday morning, coming in on a Sunday evening? It's just going to be uncomfortable, isn't it? Because I'm going to have to make a resolution to change something in my life, and I quite like my life. That's why you pray so hard, isn't it, in your head when you come to church. You pray for humility under God's teaching words. You pray that you won't dig your heels in in sin, but you'll listen to God and let Him change you. It's why listening to the Bible and reading the Bible is the most perilous thing we can do in the whole world. Because we either humbly submit and change or we harden our hearts. There's no via media there. So, practically, we listen to sermons, we go to home groups, we read the Bible to change our lives. I don't know, is it your habit at the end of a sermon to, to box one thing, one resolution, one change? You're going to pray about that week. You, know, you can't remember 25 minutes of things tomorrow morning. But you need to pray, you can remember one. Pray, you can remember one. Put a big box around it. Make sure your sermon notes go in your pocket, they go in your fridge or somewhere. One resolution, because godliness matters. The same thing, of course, for home groups, for quiet times. And and could I suggest something else that's that's really practical? If that is your resolution, how are we going to help ourselves do that? How are you going to help yourself do that? Do you have a regular contact where practical daily issues are on the agenda? Do you have someone you speak to regularly about the nitty-gritty of life? Because godliness matters. It might be your spouse. Although don't assume that time will sort of find itself. You're going to have to plan that time in. It might be your spouse. It might be your prayer triplet. It might be your accountability partners. It might be a member of your home group. It might be someone who reads the Bible one-to-one with you. It might be a close friend. In one sense, it really doesn't matter that much who it is. But if we're wanting to change under God's truth, we're going to need help with that, aren't we? We're going to need help. We're going to need people to pray for us. We're going to need people to keep us good on that. You see, if the gospel is for godliness, we're going to want to change. And we're going to want to take practical steps to help ourselves change. Now, just a little caveat. Um, don't mishear this. And don't hear me say, preach the gospel, use words if you have to. I don't know if some of you have heard that phrase preach the gospel, use words if you have to. That's not what Paul's saying to Titus. Paul is saying, teach the truth that leads to godliness. And the godliness is a necessary part of that truth. Paul is saying to Titus, godliness really matters. What Paul is not saying is don't teach the truth, just be godly. And if you want to know why that's true, the Lord Jesus Christ did not just spend his time on earth being godly. He taught and taught and taught and taught. Secondly then, if, if we're convinced that the gospel is for godliness and we need that godliness because our actions tell people what we believe, then we just need to be taught godliness. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? And that's what verses 5 to 9 are about. That's why Paul says to Titus, you've got to appoint elders in every town. We need godly leaders to make us godly people. We need godly leaders to show us how to be godly people. Now, obviously, eldership, church leadership, church government, that's been a debate over the centuries. It's a sort of thing that's caused divisions between Bible-believing Christians all the time. And frankly, much of that is sad, it's boring, it's depressing. Because they're not talking about primary issues. We're probably not even talking about secondary issues in those cases. We're talking about tertiary, quartarity, and whatever other issues there are further down there. Two little things before we focus on the big point. Firstly, do you see elders are plural? Verse 5. Appoint elders in every town. You've got to beware the one-man show. Titus was told to appoint elders so that church leadership is never just the responsibility of one man. And I take it, it's fairly obvious what could happen in that case, couldn't it? That would be very authoritarian, or it could be. It could be very uninvolving for all of us as a congregation. I'm not saying it necessarily is, but it could be. Elders are plural. Secondly, and more interestingly, perhaps, elders are bishops. Elders are bishops. I don't know if you spotted that. The word elder in verse six is the word presbyter. The word in verse seven is overseer, and it's the same job. Okay? Titus is not going to appoint a whole bunch of verse six people and then a whole bunch of verse seven people, he's to appoint elders. Overseers, presbyters, overseers is episkopoi, episkopos, which means bishop, episcopalian, episcopal, that sort of thing. Now, uh, what does that mean? Well, it means that elders are bishops. It means that bishops are elders. The two words are interchangeable. Now, I really, really want to stand here and say that means we have to call Charlie Bishop Charlie because the Bible says so. We have to call Matt Bishop Matt because I don't think it's meaning that. I think it just reforms what we think about bishops. We need to think of bishops as nothing other than probably senior elders or leaders of local congregations, because that's what the New Testament expects. So elders are plural, elders are bishops, but more importantly, more importantly, elders are to live and show the truth. The huge focus here is on elders' lives. Did you notice that it's not till verse 9 you get anything about the elders' doctrine? I don't know what your instinct would be. Got to appoint elders right We need a doctrinal basis. What do we believe as a church? Let's sign up. Can we get it into 10 points, all beginning with P? Something like that? Probably can. I have to think about that. I haven't done that. Well, doctrine does matter. Verse 9 is clear. You've got to hold firmly to the trustworthy message. But you get a lot before that. You get a lot before that because an elder is to live... A life that is blameless. Blameless, verse 6. An elder must be blameless, verse 7. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. Sobering. Clearly, it doesn't mean without sin, because otherwise, Titus could never appoint elders. You'd only have the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so it clearly doesn't mean sinless. But what it means is of good repute, of good reputation in the community in the church. And that's cashed out in the rest of these qualities we see through verses 6, 7, and 8. Do you see verse 6? He's the husband of but one wife. Uh, literally, that means a one-woman man. It's not a command they have to be married. It's a command that if they're married, they're fully committed to that woman. Not flirtatious, not looking elsewhere. Fully committed, 100%, one-woman man. More intriguing is the end of verse 6. Verse 6. A man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So you discover that an elder's daughter said no to her daddy once. Sack him. Can't be an elder. You discover that once she not only said no, but she slammed the door in his face and turned up the music really loud and didn't come out of her room for two hours. Whew. Now, listen, it's a tricky verse. Some people are so scared by this verse, they don't teach it at all. And they just say, listen, children are messy. All children get stuff wrong. That's part of being a child. So don't judge a man by his children at all. That's just unfair. When in are doing that, you slightly take the verse out of the Bible. So we need, it needs to mean something, doesn't it? But listen, elders' children are not meant to be elders'. The qualities of an elder's children are not meant to be those of an elder. So we have to not set the bar ridiculously high. They haven't got to pop out of the womb declaring the Apostles' Creed. If they do, they're very special. (laughs) Or they had a very, very long pregnancy. I think what verse 6 is saying is, you know a lot about a man by his family. You know a lot about a man by his family. Certainly in the Bible, the family is the great testing ground for church leadership. So take a man who holds trustworthily, who holds firmly to the trustworthy message. He's godly, he's kind, he's not overbearing, he's prayerful, he's generous, he's wise. If God gives that man marriage, and if God gives that marriage kids, there's absolutely no promise in the Bible that says they will all grow up Christians. And it might not be that man's fault. Likewise, take another man. This man believes the gospel, but he struggles with anger. He drinks a little bit too much. Not very faithful in prayer. Although none of us can ever say that our prayer lives are acceptable or whatever. If this man's children grow up wild and disobedient, if there are discipline issues in that man's home, if the children wouldn't want to call themselves Christians, Under God, there might be a reason for that. And anyway, the man couldn't be an elder because he wouldn't fulfil the qualities we're just about to look at. So what verse six is saying is you can tell a lot about a man by his family. You can tell a lot about a man by his family. But we must we must hear the caveat. If his children are not believers, it may not always be his fault. Uh, Sorry to spend a bit of time on that. Uh, Moving on quickly then. Elders have five voices to avoid and six strengths to pursue very quickly. Uh, Avoid being overbearing. The the, the word there is to do with intimidation. An elder is the sort of man you can't give a new idea to because he'll be intimidating. He'll overbear you. Uh, To avoid being quick-tempered. That is out of control. Sometimes when he gets into arguments, he just can't stop himself drunkenness that's out of control with alcohol not violence an elder is the sort of man that when someone's finding life at church hard and comes up to complain to them he's warm, he's approachable he's generous not greedy, not in it for the money six strengths to pursue then hospitality loving what is good self control, that means he's sensible in his life decisions Upright, a man of integrity, holy, a godly man, disciplined, self controlled. And self control, I guess, here, particularly when contrasted with those other five things we just looked at. Did you notice that elders are not to be inventive? They're not there to think of brilliant ideas. Elders are there to be faithful. They're to teach the message as it has been taught, verse nine. Now, why is that? Well, listen, what happens if an elder strays away from the real message? What happens if you move away from the truth that leads to godliness? Well, you'll teach something that leads to ungodliness, won't you? If there's a truth that leads to godliness, then everything else will lead to everything else. That's just obvious, isn't it? If you want a really depressing afternoon, go and type cult suicides into Google and you'll discover that untruth leads to horrible life that to believe false things leads to awful things I don't recommend that, it's a horrible use of a Sunday afternoon I'm just giving you a window on my Friday afternoon that's a sort of out there example isn't it what about closer to home How would unbelief or believing false things lead to ungodliness? Well, let's imagine that you believed that because God is fully sovereign, because God knows the future, then our prayers have no effect on anything. If you believed that, that would lead to prayerlessness, wouldn't it? You just wouldn't pray. If you believe that because he's fully sovereign, because because he knows the future, our prayers are pointless, you would not pray. It's an example of how a false belief about God or a misunderstood belief about God can lead to the godlessness, the ungodliness of prayerlessness. Do you see? Again, what does this mean practically? What does it mean practically? First of all, for elders, uh, forgive me just for a second, for for elders here, you can imagine I've been praying over this a little bit. (laughs) It's always a fun passage to preach on as an elder. To all of us here, I wonder whether I wonder whether we need to prioritize applied knowledge over academic knowledge. Prioritize applied knowledge over greater knowledge. You see, God wants our godliness, He wants our changed lives. Now, of course, we need to read books, we need to reflect on doctrines, we need to think about things. Of course, we do that. But we do that to help change our lives. I find it very tempting to read a book, put it down, and move on to another one, because then I've read another book. I personally struggle with that. I wonder whether this passage says to me, Andrew, sometimes ditch a second book, read it again, until you can actually cash it out in your life. Prioritize applied knowledge rather than grown knowledge. I wonder whether it's better for elders to know less and do it than to know loads and do none of it. I know that's a false false distinction, but of those two, let's all choose knowing a bit less, but really living it. Those are the sort of elders that Paul is telling Titus to look for. What does it mean for us as a church? Uh, Listen, you've got to pray. (laughs) I take it that when you first heard this passage read uh, a few minutes ago, you just thought, man, I've got to pray for our elders. Could you know us? Well, please do pray for us. We need your prayers. You see, Paul is saying in this letter, godliness matters. It matters because what you believe is cashed out in your life. Godliness matters. And so the church in in Crete needs to be taught godliness. How do you get taught that? Godly elders. Pray for your elders' godliness. And encourage us, challenge us. When you see us being godly, well, praise God and maybe encourage us if that's appropriate. Uh, When you see us being ungodly, pray to God. And if appropriate, maybe challenge us. God wants us all to have godly elders. Thirdly, if you move church, don't, okay? If you move church, can I recommend, you don't just need to see the doctrinal basis online and listen to a sermon. You need to get an invite round for lunch because you can tell a lot about a man by his family. So if you're ever looking at a church, doctrinal basis and a sermon is not enough. Because Paul says to Titus, look at lives. Look at lives. Thirdly, then, I think it's fairly straightforward. If godliness matters, because it catches out what we believe, and if we need to be taught godliness, then, of course, ungodliness needs to be silenced. And we've seen why, haven't we? We've seen why. It's not out of a a wish to be combative. It's not out of a desire to prove yourself right. It's just compassion. It's compassion that means that ungodliness has to be silenced. Did you notice verse 11? They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. It's compassion that drives us as elders and as a congregation to make us stand on truths. Did you, did you spot verse 12? It kind of jumps out, doesn't it, verse 12? Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. That is not Paul being offensive. That is what a Cretan said about Cretans. That is what one of their own poets said about them. Epimenides, I believe it was. He said, we're a lying, brutish, lazy society. And Paul says that society needs the gospel because the gospel will teach godliness. The gospel will transform those lives from lying brutish laziness to the godliness we've just seen cashed out in these verses so don't listen to Jewish myths, verse 14 don't listen to the circumcision group of verse 10 it seems like these people taught that to be a Christian you had to first of all be a Jew so that you had to be circumcised I rejoice in the fact that that is not true They were characterized by rigid rules and rampant immorality. Don't listen to those people. Don't listen to them. But it's for that reason, for that compassion, for the whole households that could be ruined that elders still need to be awake, awake today to contend for the truth. The issues are not the same necessarily. But just as truth leads to godliness and untruth leads to ungodliness. For example... Some of you may have heard of a man called Gene Robinson. He's a bishop in the United States of America. He believes all sorts of false things. Notably, this man was married. He took vows before God. He took vows to his wife. And he has turned away from them. And to my knowledge, has made no public statement of sorry for that. Nothing at all. No repentance. And he's made a bishop. See, a false belief is cashed down a false lifestyle. That man, it seems to me, should not be a leader of a local church, an elder bishop. So it's moved by loving compassion for him and his hearers, for others like him and their hearers, that you get verse 9 and verse 11, verse 9. The elder must encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it because they'll ruin whole households. They'll ruin them. Now, how does an elder do this? Well, not aggressively. He does it lovingly. An elder's characterized by those things we already saw. How does he do it? He does it by teaching the Bible. He does it by sticking with verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. Calvin said a brilliant thing about this. He said this. A pastor or an elder needs two voices. One for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. The scriptures supply him with the means for doing both. And he who has been rightly instructed in it will be able both to rule those who are teachable And to refute enemies of the truth. Do you see? Two voices, but the same scriptures. Why? Out of compassion, lest households be ruined. What does this mean practically? What does it mean practically? Well, for all of us here, it's worth noting verse 13 and 14. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. The them in verse 13 is not the false teachers. The them in, in 13 is the Christians in Crete. Rebuke them sharply. Hmm. Well, no one likes being rebuked sharply. I think this is a slightly hard application. Can I suggest that we pray that as much as we can by God's help, We delight in being corrected when we get the truth wrong. Because only the truth will lead to godliness, and error will lead to ungodliness. Now, we all find this hard. I find it really hard to discover that I'm wrong and to be told. I find it particularly hard in public. You'd think that after years and years of it happening, I'd actually learn. (laughs) Sadly, I haven't yet. You see, false belief will affect anything. False doctrines could ruin households. So you you make your best stab at it in a a home group. The the home group leader asks a question, you think you've got the answer, you you don't really like speaking at home group, it's a little bit scary, There's, there's seven other people in the room, but you give it a go, and you get it wrong. And your godly, gentle, kind, wise Bible study leader, in a godly, gentle, kind, and wise way, says to you, I, I can't do an impression of that, I'm sorry, but um, <laughs> I feel like I should be able to. If you're compassionately told that that's not quite right, why don't you join me in praying that you'll rejoice in that? Because a false belief is going to mess things up, isn't it? It's a hard application, I think. But that's why Paul writes to Titus a public letter. That's why this letter is not just a private letter to Titus, but he needs the Cretans to hear what Titus's job is and what the elder's job is so that they... Understand why sometimes they get stuff wrong gently, graciously, kindly, lovingly they might need to be told. Finally, can I just ask if you're still with me and you wouldn't want to call yourself a Christian here I wonder if you're still with me I wonder whether you were convinced at all about these truths that would lead to godliness I wonder what you thought of that what do you think is the logical application of knowing that the king of the universe, died to make you pure? What do you think might be the logical application of knowing that one day we will live forever in moral purity? I wonder if you thought that was sensible. I wonder if you thought, that godly lifestyle does really cash out those beliefs. I wonder if you had a chance to think about any of your beliefs and see how they might cash out. I've got someone I know very well who would call themselves an atheist agnostic. And she basically believes that democracy wins any argument. You just take a vote. And as long as you get 51% of the world, or 51% of humans ever, well, that wins. So she's an atheist agnostic. Interesting logic, of course, isn't it? What if you could prove, what if you discovered that 51% of the world believed that men wearing pink should be put in prison? Would you change your belief? She claims yes, I don't think she would. What would you do if you found that 51% of the world thought that lying is fine? Lying's fine as long as you don't get caught. There's a film about that at the moment, isn't there? Good fun. But of course, this person I'm talking about hates it when she's lied to, she hates it. Would she change her belief if I could prove to her that 51% of the world believed? What if she could find that 51% of the world thought murder was fine? You see, she wants to say that this is her belief system. That democracy wins it. It isn't really her belief system. It's just a helpful method of argument because at the moment she thinks she can show to me that that's true it's not a belief system because you won't take it to where it logically leads if you wouldn't want to call yourself a Christian can I encourage you to think through the logical trajectory of what you believe maybe chat it through with someone where do your beliefs lead you and do you see that these beliefs lead to real godliness do you see that to believe in the historic death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and a certain return that leads to real godliness You see, Paul is saying there's only one truth. There's only one truth that can lead to godliness. Only one truth can make people like those men in verses 6 to 9. Only one truth can lead to self-discipline, can lead to goodness, can lead to purity, can lead to kindness, can lead to not being overbearing, can lead to not being out of control, not being argumentative. One truth. Laws can't make you like that. Your own personal effort can't make you like that. Your friends can't help you become like that. Money you spend cannot make you like that. Time will not give it. In years to come, it still will not change you. Unless you come to the one truth that leads to godliness. Because if you know that Jesus died to make you godly, that Jesus died to make you eager to do what is good, that Jesus will one day return to bring in a pure universe a recreated world those truths do lead to godliness or well, they should those truths are the only truths that can lead to godliness i wonder what you make of them i'd love to chat to you afterwards if you're not convinced or, or to hear what your your views on those would be It'd be great to chat afterwards over coffee i wonder if we all see together don't we godliness matters there is a truth that leads to godliness why don't we pray Our loving Heavenly Father, thank you for your revealed word. Thank you for your revealed truth. That the Lord Jesus Christ died to make us godly, eager to do what is good. And that he will return to usher in a perfect world. How we pray, Father, for all of us this morning, that you help us to live lives changed by these truths. Help us, please, to cash out and practice the beliefs we hold. We long that so that people might see what we believe. That our actions might speak as loud as our words. And Father, for any of us uh, thinking through these issues, how we pray that you help us. Help us to reflect. Help us to think through what our beliefs might lead to. And we ask all this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, it's our habit here just to pause for a couple of minutes after the sermon. And uh, give a chance to ask questions. So why not take um, 45 seconds, chat to someone next to you, see what you think, and do ask to the front if you've got anything in just a minute's time. Pravin. Uh, The question is, these qualities uh, of eldership, should they be aspirations for all Christians? Good question. Uh, They probably should be, but I think that's not the focus of this passage. So you could... uh, There's a whole bunch of lists of spiritual gifts gentleness, patience, godliness, self-control, faithfulness. They're more directly aspirations for all Christians, but clearly these are good things to be, Um, otherwise there wouldn't be uh, qualities needed for elders. So, probably yes, but not directly. That's a good question. Yeah? That's a great question. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry that if I, if I was unclear on that. Um, the whole letter's about it. It's more obviously cashed out next week. Um, it's, so it's clearer next week. <laughs> That's just in the pocket, that answer. But I think here, um, the obvious of godliness is those lists about the elders, which is why I majored on them. So it is godly to be... Um, not overbearing. It's godly not to be quick-tempered, not to be drunk, not to be violent. It is godly to be hospitable, to love good, to be self-controlled. And most simply, godliness is, is a character like God's. And you want to see that? That's, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? A character like his. Um, good question. That's a great question. Thank you very much. The question is, is that specific for elders, or should all the church be expected to live up to the standard of eldership? Um, Godliness is for all. So Titus uh, 1 verse 1 is about the truth that leads to godliness, which is why I I tried to major on that quite a bit at the beginning. He then focuses in on elders as a means for us to learn godliness. So we need godly elders so that we can teach, we can be taught godliness. Um, And all these things elders are to be like are good. They're great things to aspire to, but they're they're put here primarily so that Christians in Crete can understand what their elders should look like. So I was trying to take that kind of direct line, uh, but I think secondarily, of course, they're godly things to aspire to. Um, is that, does that answer at all? They're all godly things for us all to aspire to, but they're required of elders.